Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Talking high-speed weapons, armoured vehicles, Navy frigates, and yes, those dreaded submarines. Ten years ago, usually secretive defence companies were, well, pretty secretive. But that's all changed if they were spending collectively perhaps $1 million a year on marketing, lobbying and communications campaigns. Industry experts now estimate it's up to 30 times that figure. Some are even doing brand campaigns. Go figure that one. It's all got far more competitive and sophisticated in the race for hundreds of billions of dollars in government defence contracts. Companies now realise they have a bigger pool of stakeholders to influence and woo, including the public and communities. So with us today to talk through the mysterious and exotic moves of the defence industry, Chandran Vignes Warren, Principal of Chandran Think and a former BAE Systems Executive who worked on the $45 billion Federal Defence Frigate contract. We also have Tori Shepard, a senior journalist with The Guardian, who's covered the defence sector for little over a thousand years. This one will be a cracker, so welcome to you both. Chandran, to you first. Give us a sense of uh, an overview, really, in the last decade of how defence industry has sort of communicated and influenced outcomes on these huge contracts that we're going to cover. It was very different 10 years ago to what we're seeing today. Welcome, Chandran, and give us a sense of how it's been done or what it was done and how it is now. Thanks for having me on. It's such an interesting topic to talk about because I think first and foremost, it's important to recognise that defence spending in Australia, the Australian Defence Force, the Australian Government, their spending on defence equipment and capability has been exponential over the last few years and will continue to grow over the next couple of decades as the threats or the perceived threats in the region increase. So defence companies or defence industry, as they call themselves, have responded to that, to the need for more advanced technology, greater capability, you know, and as you said at the beginning, whether it's armoured vehicles or the latest anti-submarine warfare frigates, or as, you know, Australians really conscious of now, nuclear submarines, the defence industry has needed to engage in different ways with the Australian government or the customer, as they call it, to win work. It's a really competitive environment. There are new entrants from all around the world wanting to secure billions of dollars of work to help grow their businesses and help deliver a better capability to the Australian Defence Force. Yeah, and so that means more competition, more players. What are they doing differently? Sort of 10 years ago, it was a little bit primitive and prehistoric, was it? And much narrower in what they needed to do to get to a, a result. Is that a fair observation, Chandra? So 10 years ago, or you know, if we look back over the last couple of decades, defence companies probably approached marketing of their products in Australia in a business development approach. They'd engage with the customer. You know, they were very good at understanding, and they still are very good at understanding what the customer wants, not just today, but 10, 20, 30 years into the future. And that drives their research and development and their product development within their companies. I think, you know, because firstly, the expenditure increased, therefore the competition increased, they've needed to approach things differently. They've needed to market themselves more strategically. 
And in order to win those contracts, they've realised that it isn't just the Army or the Air Force or the Navy that are making decisions or are the big influences for the winning company or the winning supplier. They've realised in some cases it's the Australian supply chain that plays a role in influencing the outcome. There are political reasons for different choices of products, which are myriad and complicated. I'm sure Tori will expand on that in a really informed way. And interestingly, the Australian community have had great interest because the government is spending such a huge amount of taxpayers' money in this area. And the rhetoric is ramped up too, right? We're all now concerned about, you know, takeovers from all sorts of countries, you know, and all sort of conflict and political friction that's going on. So we're all aware of that. I guess it makes it a heightened sense of awareness, does it? I definitely think so. Australia's geopolitical challenges are something that more Australians are aware of, particularly as those threats have increased and the government has sought to talk about them more and engage the public on the importance of them and the importance to the the safety of Australia and its people. So give us a sense, Chandran, on who are the key defence companies that are involved in, you know, all those different contracts and supply plays that are out there. Who are they and how are they doing marketing, comms, lobbying, influencing, if you like? How are they doing that? I'm going to go small and then I'll go big. Okay. And the reason why is I think the really interesting thing is Australian defence companies have really grown. Their capabilities increasing, their technology is increasing, they're winning contracts to supply to the Australian Defence Force, but also globally. And so you're starting to actually see at the moment some really interesting small to medium-sized Australian companies start to play in the defence space and start to create really interesting brands of their own, you know, be it engineering capability that they're delivering or products like autonomous vehicles or autonomous capability. There's this really interesting growth of Australian companies that I think from a marketing perspective is starting to appear in the landscape. And then, you know, the other side of the spectrum, you've got big global companies from the one that I worked for, BA Systems, a UK-based company, to in the main, a lot of US defence companies, um, the US is obviously the biggest spender on defence. It's pretty widely known. And so a lot of companies involved in defence and supplying the US Defence Force are American. From Lockheed Martin to uh, Raytheon, there are a lot of really competitive and interesting and advanced technology companies that are competing in the Australian market now. And I think, Paul, I think the other thing that's really interesting is, is some of these companies who, who would have previously had very small offices in Australia at a small footprint and we really just come in and sell their product and now starting to establish a bigger footprint here, hiring more people, investing in technology, investing in Australian companies. And I think it's another big change to the industry in Australia. Uh, what about the Europeans, Chandran? Because they're a bit of a hot topic at the moment. One European country in particular for Australia, but there's some German companies and there's that French one with submarines. What was that one called again? <laughs> yeah, how could I forget the Europeans? I mean, what a mistake. Sorry, Paul. I, <laughs> I forgive myself for that. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, companies from Germany to France to the UK, there are a lot of different companies competing here. Obviously, everyone's heard of Naval Group, the company that previously had the contract to build submarines here in Australia. But across the whole defence landscape, it is quite broad. 
you know, Tori's going to voice up in a second here, but I know, you know, when Tori and I have sort of walked around defence expos in Australia, there's a myriad of accents that you hear on the exhibition floor because technology is being developed all over the world and Australia wants and needs leading technology if it's going to ensure that it has the capability to protect its citizens. So just on that, Chandran, you talked about walking the floors of exhibitions, and that, is, I guess, has been essentially the primary marketing channel, if you like, the communications, the exhibition stuff of how you show your wares, how you get people in to have a look at at least what you're doing. That has been the primary way that you know companies have showcased their product and done you know done their tap dance or has it got beyond that now clearly we're going to get into now i'm going to ask you what they are doing but that would have been sort of the baseline i imagine yeah i think you're absolutely right i'd say you know 10 15 years ago the marketing budgets of defense companies competing in australia were primarily or 80% if not even higher focused on exhibiting their wares and engaging and allowing their people to engage with the australian customer at these large exhibitions, both in Australia and globally. Like the marketing profession has evolved, so has marketing within defence companies now, but at a rapid pace. So they really are thinking more strategically about who the target audience is. That's a really important part of what they're doing. So they're being strategic and firstly, who the audience is, what the messaging is required, how they talk about their capability and their products, what the customer is actually looking for and how messaging fits into ensuring that they can influence in the right way. And I think then tactically, their budget is spread much more broadly from exhibitions, which is still an important part of it, even though COVID has taken that away in the past couple of years and may continue to. But I'm seeing the investment move more now to traditional forms of marketing like advertising through to content marketing and social media and very importantly, engagement with traditional media. And that is definitely something, and I think, you know, great opportunity to ask Tori her experience on this, but my perception was an industry that wasn't necessarily secretive, but didn't see the media as a critical channel to talk to either its customer or the community. And that has changed. You're seeing defence companies now actually start to have a view and position themselves on Australian issues, be it the economy, be it COVID, be it diversity and inclusion, they're starting to become more of a fabric of the Australian business community. Well, I might go to Tori. We'll come back, Chandran, to some of the sort of the campaigns and executions that you've seen down on, on the street and the lead up to some of these big contracts being done. And I definitely want to get there and, and sort of the stakeholders. But Tori, welcome. And I guess, you know, what's it like to be sort of in hot demand by a really cool exotic defence sector. Is that the case? You've covered it for a long time, though. I did say a 1,000. It could be a slight exaggeration. Let's go with a 1,000. It's fine. (laughs) It's changed dramatically, just to reiterate some of what Chandran said, because when I first started covering some defence stuff, I was in politics, state politics and then federal politics, and I'm in South Australia, so, you know, defence was important. We've all got problems, sorry. (laughs) Defence was important on both those levels. But the way it used to be would be you'd have a flurry around a white paper, for example, 
or perhaps, you know, a surge in interest because the Collins class submarines were having some issues, you know, a few years ago now. So it would sort of pop into your consciousness in the traditional media. Obviously, the trade press always have a you know, laser-like focus on this, but in traditional mainstream media, it would just sort of crop up every now and then. And then I think as soon as we started talking about the future submarines and the future frigates, it just exploded. And that was because we were spending a lot more and there was pressure from the US, from NATO to increase our share of GDP that we were spending on defence. We were talking more about belligerence of China and where we sat and actually really thinking about Australia's place in the world and that conversation that we're still having, which is the tension between China as a trade partner and as a potential bad actor, (laughs) Australia being like the US's deputy sheriff in the region kind of thing and those tensions that we still see playing out. I mean, they're probably not, not resolvable really. So I think that brought it way more to the forefront. And then it just exploded when all of a sudden we had that competitive evaluation process for the future submarines. None of us were really sure at the time what that was. I'm still not entirely sure (laughs) what that was. And that set up like a a real narrative arc actually for the press because you know, it was like the French versus the Germans versus the Japanese. Right. All countries that we have different histories with here in Australia became an interesting cultural kind of tension there. And that was the first time I really saw the defence companies, the defence industry launch into the big woo, you know, wooing journalists, which is interesting because... Yeah. How do they do it? What and how did they do? Were they just trying to have a conversation or was it way beyond that? Look, it was beyond that and... You know, there's a conversation to be had about journalism ethics in all this. So, you know, I went to France, I went to Germany, and I went to Japan with defence industry to see. All on their tickets, right? They were covering that. All on their tickets. I feel comfortable because I went to all three. Not everybody did. But you would have felt if you said no, you're missing a massive insight into their process, how they're operating, how their existing offerings are going, you know, what they already had kind of in the water. Invaluable for making contacts, for understanding the technical aspects, because that's, right, exactly. you know, before the submarines, before the future submarines and the frigates, most of your reporters, unless they were specialising just in defence, they wouldn't know when you're talking about propulsion systems or, you know, when you're talking about blue versus green water or anything else like that. So it's a huge learning experience, but of course it's also a massive marketing opportunity. And behind it all is what kept kind of popping into my brain while I'm, you know, flying business class to these countries. is like what I think shouldn't influence in any way the outcome right. of this $90 billion project, right? Like it just shouldn't, but because politics plays a role and the interplay between journalism and politics is there. You know, you can't rule out some daft hack in Adelaide, you know, maybe playing into the politics that eventually had some impact on the decision. And so it's a bit of an aside, but it's an interesting one you bring up about the ethics around journalism. I know, you know, when I was at the old Fairfax for a long time, they sort of moved between sort of doing the junkets and not doing the junkets and allowing it and not allowing it. And I was, to your point, I was always, you know, the perspective that you get, if you can convince yourself you can't be bought or influenced, at least maybe not bought, but influenced in perspective, what you get out of those research trips is certainly some of the stuff I did with Silicon Valley and tech Mm. was really, really helpful. So there's an upside to that. How many journos, how do they play it with you? So wine dined, deep in the product and sort of around the technology, I guess. Yeah, all of that. I mean, you know, we call them junkets. I would argue that a junket is when you're like just doing a 
review of a five-star hotel somewhere in the Pacific. Yeah, fair point. These are, you know, you're up at ridiculous hours, you're tromping around shipyards, you're listening to lectures on the specific tech, you're sitting in boardroom meetings, you're trying to get to the bottom of what was particularly, I guess, interesting to the broad audience with the submarines, what part can Australia play in this? I mean, how many jobs are there for us? What can we do when you seem to have this operation you know, already here, up and going. So they were, they were hard work, but, you know, there was also a lot of, yeah, fabulous dinners, whining, dining, all that sort of stuff. But often, again, an opportunity there to talk to people who normally wouldn't talk freely to the press. So, you know, I think those trips were immensely valuable, but I do, you know, hold with some tension in my brain the idea that, you know, being wined and dined by you know, massive defence companies has, is yeah. problematic. Let's talk to you at that point you made earlier about the interplay between industry and government and government departments and politicians, right? And that's where I guess you do have a role because you're covering politics, so you're sort of covering what all that means, what that looks like. What does it look like now versus 10 years ago? What are your key observations around that, Tori? Well, one of the most interesting things is that the Defence Department is notoriously crap at dealing with journalists, you know, withholding information that should just be freely available, you know, national security implications or whatever. They've been put in front of you know, Senate inquiries about how long it takes to get a response to a question to the Defence Department. I had this, and this one classic where I think, I think Maurice Payne was minister. She was talking about some aircraft coming home from the Middle East and didn't say how many. And, you know, I think we had four planes and it was like all four coming home. Like factual you know, the defence minister said, can we know this? And it took three days to get an answer back. So, you know, yeah. the story had already run with, you know, don't know how many planes kind of thing. It's a really kind of obstructionist. But we used to just deal with the defence department. So when the industry came on board and we actually had people who we could ask questions directly to get a quick answer, you know, much more, I mean, obviously they were keeping a lot of secrets, but far more transparency, you know, and a willingness to just tell you stuff that was in no way going to affect national security. So suddenly you had people to talk to, you had colour you could add, you could fill in the details really quickly, you could broaden out and talk a lot about, you know, getting more women into STEM and more of the, I guess, you know, corporate social responsibilities. So all of a sudden it was it was like it opened up in a way that you could make your defence writing much more interesting than just here's a line from an audit report that I couldn't get any response to or details on. Did that sort of more activity, that more access to the defence industry, did it throw up new story angles and new observations of how things play out and, you know, the underlying activity that happens between industry and government? Did it throw more stuff up for you? It certainly threw more stuff up. Hard stuff like, you know, a particular tech that was being developed and also really soft stuff like, the French were going to convert the galley so that instead of a baguette maker, there might be a barbecue. You know, like, <laughs> this is not, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's slightly frivolous and yet it's the sort of thing that people are interested in. So, yeah, it certainly threw up more stories, but then it also threw up way more complications because when there are big companies vying for one of these huge contracts, there's also a lot of backgrounding, there's a lot of, you know, Black ops, like, oh, I've got someone inside with that submarine, you know, <laughs> it's not going to sink as opposed to it's not going to float, you know. So that's really tricky. And time-consuming, that stuff, right? When you start getting the someone's had a little word to you on the side about something, you've got to follow it up. There's hours in it. Oh, look, there's absolutely hours in it. 
And there's a lot of cases where you just go, look, you know, I'm going to have to just discount that and pretend I don't know it because, you know, not that they're bad actors, but they have obvious incentives to downplay what the other guys can do because everybody was doing it. You just, yeah, you had to, you know, develop a little kind of cash in your brain. You're like, I'm just going to put that in the, you know, they're after billions of dollars here, cash, and not let it sort of affect how I'm reporting on things. Unless, you know, unless in some way it was verifiable and a lot of the time it just wasn't verifiable. Paul, Tori does make a really good point about the change that you've seen in access or, or the difference between, you know, what she was, I found it really interesting, Tori, when you were talking about how, you know, previously defence wouldn't provide commentary and maybe they still don't now. It's hard to get information out of Department of Defence in any country. But what you probably experienced is then countries coming in to compete for work who would provide exposure to Australian journalists to uniform parts of their own defence industry. So journalists like Tory would get access to members of the British Navy or the Army from a European country that had an armoured vehicle that they wanted to offer to Australia. That is interesting and I immediately flashed to because it came up as a Facebook memory the other day. I'm in France wearing my submarines of the spaceships of the ocean T-shirt <laughs> and just having a really casual chat to their first Barracuda commanding officer. So, you know, the top submarine commander in France. And now here in Australia, I wouldn't be just, you know, hanging around and taking a selfie with, you know, somebody of that, <laughs> of that yeah. rank. Are you name-dropping, Tori? Very I impressive, I have to say. <laughs> it's really good. I'm jealous. Actually, I was name dropping the T-shirt because that was just, you know, that was Senator John Madigan's finest moment. I was just going to say, Chandran, so Tories, you know, you talk about the defence companies broadening their stakeholder attention, focus, deployment, wooing, all that. Tories, one of them. What are those other stakeholders? And you mentioned it earlier, but the tactical stuff, the executions here of how they try and do it. We obviously see corporate affairs or show me it's corporate affairs that sort of is the point for Tory, the early point for Tory to get access and sort of the games begin. But who are those other stakeholders? You talked about the community players. Sorry, not who they are, but how are they being engaged tactically? Well, I think it's probably fair to say that most defence companies who are involved in bidding for a big campaign, go through a very diligent exercise of identifying everyone who could influence that outcome. And that's from the user of their equipment. So say it's an Air Force piece of equipment or an Air Force project, everyone that could influence it within there, as well as departmental, because there is a part of the Department of Defence who manage procurement and people who influence actually what is being procured in the first place and the process that they go through, right through to the ministerial level, right across the spectrum from finance to defence to foreign affairs. It really is quite a broad range of stakeholders that are involved in big acquisitions like the submarine or the frigates or the armoured vehicle contracts. Those really big contracts are quite, you know, involve a lot of engagement over a long period of time. I think the other one we spoke about is for some of these big contracts, there is a broader list of stakeholders. There is a whole supply chain of companies who want to get involved. And some of them will have allegiances to different countries or companies because they know that they've got a greater chance of being chosen as a supplier. And so there is, like in any campaign, be it political, a coalition of forces that companies need to bring together to to help influence or help win over. 
And I think some of the companies who have been successful in winning big work in Australia have been very good at building those coalitions of support to help influence the ultimate decision maker. The other audience or, you know, stakeholder that's been important more recently is, you know, we talked about the general public and such a, you know, broad term to say general public, yeah. the marketing sense. But, you know, for the subs and frigates, the South Australian community was very important. You know, normally state governments aren't a stakeholder in defence. They're not involved in the decision-making process. But state governments have been vying over the past few years. You've seen state governments vie for contracts. Land 400 was the name of the acquisition, uh, Land 400 Phase 2 or Phase 3, but the the armoured vehicle projects that the defence was competing over the last few years saw Victoria, South Australia and Queensland all vie for the project to be based in their backyard because it created jobs, it created a perceptions of a government who was a state government who was investing um, and providing jobs and building their economy and also provided for some of the states a replacement for the motor vehicle industry that was on a decline. So you can see a whole range of different audiences there from, you know, motor vehicle industry to state politicians to engineers and technicians and unions who are wanting to secure work. So how did they do this, Chandra? Was it tactical in that were they targeting him on LinkedIn or Facebook with, you know, personalised or highly targeted ads with a message? Was it mainstream ads or something completely different that I can't even think of? Well, you know, I'd say all and above, you know, everything. For a 35 or an $80 billion or a $20 billion contract, no one wanted to leave the country not having put everything on the table. And so mainstream advertising, for the first time, I think, in Australia, you're seeing defence companies do that. You know, whether it is in on TV or radio. Airports. Airports. Airports, Airports right. In these giant ads for the defence companies. Yeah, Canberra Airport's a big one. But also, I think, a huge and quick advancement in the way they are using social media to target key advisors, key politicians, or anyone on that stakeholder base that they're seeking to influence. And I don't think, I mean, it's interesting, Victoria sort of mentioned ethics, you know, is this defence contracts, is this appropriate? I think the way, you know, having been part of some of these campaigns, the, the aim of the marketing was to provide information to ensure that the key strengths of what they're offering were understood by people who may not be exposed to it but are, or understand it, but in some way uh, will be involved in the decision-making process. So brand is a part of it and lifting the brand of companies who, you know, no one had heard the name of before mm. is quite an important part of that process. Who or what does a defence company marketing team look like and led by? Is it as we would, you know, classically sort of view a B2B or a B2G as in business to government marketer or is it more led by corporate affairs, public affairs, government relations sort of type people? What does that look like in a defence company now? Yeah, I think one way to think about it is what does a campaign team look like? Right. The campaign team is actually like a marketing team, really. You've got people who are focused on product. Or an election team, perhaps, and Tories. That's, she'll understand that. We'd better help her out. Yeah, what do you think, Tori? More like an election <laughs> campaign? Yeah, it was not dissimilar, although the process is not exactly democratic. <laughs> yes, good point. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, you're selling, I guess, 
several layers of what you have to offer. So you've got the product at the front, you know, and you've got to convince the hardheads, in this case, Navy, that you've got the best product for them. And then quite often you had like different people, but working closely together, targeting the government, you know, and sitting at the table, I guess, with CASG and talking about, you know, what flexibility there was in terms of, again, you know, local capabilities and so on. And then back to the people who deal with the media, you know, within each company, I probably have at least two or three people who I deal with regularly. And then I guess you've got your brand marketing people as another layer and they all kind of, you know, interoperate because they know they've got to hit all those levels. So, Chandra, can I ask, you worked on the frigate contract for BAE Systems. What did your campaign team look like? What did it consist of? Well, I was part of a broader campaign team because, as I said, it really brings together. And so, firstly, what I'd say, not just BAE Systems, but most companies competing in the defence space on large contracts, they actually they pull together a campaign team quite quickly that is in place just for a campaign. They'll recruit often some of the best and brightest people across the business from engineers to finance people to HR, functional support to government relations and then marketing, the true sort of communications and marketing team. And for some of the big campaigns that I was a part of, from a marketing or communications perspective, we would normally have a core team of two to three people embedded within the campaign, but then they would be supported by the broader function, which, you know, grew quite a bit during that era you know, which for different companies would be sized anywhere from 10 to 20 people. And I'd say that is a big difference between the types and size of communications functions that Australia has seen within defence companies, which traditionally would have been one to two to three people. So a big investment, drawing in good quality talent from other industries because defence traditionally didn't have people who engaged with the media or knew how to develop content or were responsible for advertising. So defence companies were recruiting from other traditional B or B2G companies as well as from advertising, PR and functional sort of agencies like that. Mm. That's fascinating. And what was that story, sorry? Certainly recruiting journalists as well. You know, journalism's been having a tough time as lots of people and quite a few of them have found homes in defence industry. Like who? Oh, you want me to name names? Oh, can we? <laughs> no, no, let's not then. No, well, I mean, you know, there are obvious things like our state political editor at the Advertiser, Daniel Wills, went across to do communications for Naval Group. Right. I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, but journalism didn't feel like a safe place for a job and Naval Group seemed like one until... Something happened, yes. <laughs> yeah, but no, there's quite a lot of them. I mean, BAE had at least two ex-journos that I can think of. Yeah, we did. And I think this probably isn't that different from other industries who've, when they're ramping up their media divisions that they previously probably haven't engaged with the public before, see lots of value, rightly, to have journalists working for them who understand how the media operates and have got some good, deep relationships across the Australian media landscape. So just to wrap this up, because it's been fascinating, I just want to wrap it up with this what next, because... Tori, you mentioned before we started uh, recording, you know, about AUKUS and what the hell that's going to mean. If anything, it's going to mean lots more, lots more activity, lots more action, I'd imagine. So with both the, what we saw happen with the French and the submarine fallout, the move to this new partnership and pact between the UK, US and Australia called AUKUS, what does all that mean? I'll start with you first, Tori. What do you think is going to happen in defence and its activities in the market? Well, I think 
one of the first really interesting things that's happened is a lot of this has just been, come out at a very high level. You know, we first saw the announcement, obviously, with Scott Morrison and Joe Biden and Boris Johnson and the fella from Down Under, whatever. And then from there, we also saw a lot of the tension play out publicly. Emmanuel Macron talking about, I guess, the deep betrayal that France felt at Naval Group being kind of kicked out of the contract, you know, asked if Prime Minister Scott Morrison had lied to him. He said, I don't think I know. So it's been it's been really interesting seeing that, you know, geopolitical tensions and details about this deal played out at that level, as opposed to how the original competitive evaluation project played out, which was very much kind of here on the ground in Australia. I think for me and for reporters, the big question will be how transparent will the process be? I mean, we're yet to choose between the US and the UK. There was initially talks about potential hybrid between the two, which I think have been dismissed now, how the intellectual property gets handled. And once again, you know, what's in it for Australians? Because obviously the most you know important thing is national security, but at the same time, people want to know where are the jobs, you know, all the jobs that were promised under the Naval Group contract, do they all seamlessly transition? I mean, I think the government tries to give the impression that everything would seamlessly transition across. People are worried about their jobs. At the same time, defence industry is worried about not having enough workers. So I think think that'll, that'll continue. But for me, the most interesting thing will be how much information we get. The US is actually way more committed to freedom of speech and, you know, telling people what's going on than the Australian government quite often. So Sounds a bit ironic. What goes on there? Honestly, I hadn't understood it fully. And then I was in Iraq and you can just talk to American soldiers. Right. You can have a conversation, ask them how they're going, you know, how, you know, get their opinion. You can't talk to Australian soldiers. You have to, you know, have asked for permission to go all the way up through the hierarchy and all the way back down. So they actually have a degree of commitment to telling the press what is going on. Whereas the UK is much more similar to Australia and you know, will all three of them have to agree before they tell us anything? Oh, you know, or does this do we go back to the dark old days of like we don't hear a single thing about it until decisions are made and then we don't even know the machinations that led to that decision. That would be my concern that it's, you know, we go back to a lack of transparency. Hmm. Chandran, just sort of to wrap up your sense on what next, what's going to happen in defence marketing, comms, lobbying and uh what perhaps AUKUS means for all of that, if anything? I think I agree with Tori. I think that the next sort of 10 years is going to be a bit different to the high campaigning that we've seen for the last 10, because most of the big contracts have been won or have been identified. But I think that the focus of the communications or marketing functions is going to be more around demonstrating that the contracts that they've won are being delivered and managing the issues around that when they occur, because they will. These are large, complex programs, most of them. And like any large, complex program, cost change, customer demands change, and timelines blow out. That's just the reality. So I think there's some sort of issues management that will become more of a focus. The other thing is there is still some interesting work to be won in some really interesting areas that I think the public will start to hear about. High-speed weapons is one of them. High-speed weapons, and Tori and I have talked about this before, you know, when I worked uh, for BAE, but there are a lot of companies who want to be part of helping Australia solve the challenge of protecting itself, but also ensuring it has an appropriate high-speed weapon in place. So 
I think that's going to be interesting. And then I think the third thing is perhaps it's part of the... Before you get to the third thing, I've got to ask, what's a high-speed weapon? Aren't they all bloody fast? I'm thinking rockets anyway, but, yeah. you know... you Essentially like rockets that can go very fast, be undetected. Go into orbit. Go into orbit and reach long distances very quickly, which is difficult to protect from. Yeah, so I think that's going to be part of the future. And I think the final thing I was going to say, which we touched on before was... And Tori certainly mentioned was the need for engineers to deliver these programs. And we know Australia has a dearth of engineers. And for defence programs, the big challenge is you can't just bring them in from overseas. They've got to go through significant security clearances. Yeah, you were saying this, right? Sometimes even if you're second generation Australian, but your parents or something, someone lives in another country, you don't qualify. Does it get that? There are very, very strict security clearances required to work in defence and particularly on some of the highly sensitive projects. So that makes it harder for defence companies to find engineers. You know, I know that, you know, some of the jobs that companies recruit for have a title, for example, combat systems engineer. Well, doesn't that sound hot? There's not a lot of those around. They're highly competitive and sought after positions. And the government, together with the industry, have got to work out how do we get more engineers in Australia broadly, and then how do we get into defence? Because they've got to be homegrown. And we don't even have enough submariners for the for the boats that we have, let alone doubling the fleet. So, And then when you look at the pipeline, you sort of think, oh, look, it's ages until we get the new submarines in the water. But actually, you know, <laughs> people need to be thinking about it now, thinking about how to get people into that pipeline through school and through university so that they're ready by the time those boats hit the water. So, yeah, I think Chandon's right that the workforce is going to be a really interesting challenge. And it's been interesting to see industry switch to sort of not emphasise, you know, dirty old shipyards, but emphasise a lot of the cool high-tech stuff. And I think the crossover with space is going to be really important with that because space and dinosaurs, right, that's how you get the kids into the STEM subjects. So they've really been you know, quite explicitly pushing the idea of the breadth of jobs that you can have. You need interior designers for submarines, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, of course. It really is a marketing exercise for an industry to change its appeal to a public who doesn't know what defence is and has traditionally been clouded in secrecy. And they think it's camo or high-vis and it's like, no. Yeah, yes, right. They might need another Top Gun or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, right. You did mention space. It's fascinating some of the stuff that I'm an amateur on it, but fascinating some of the things that are going on both, you know, in military terms, but also in mining terms, like they're talking about mining meteors and China's already there on the dark side of the moon. And and there's a race there between the US to commercially just sort of, you know, bring back commodities, if you like, outside the military stuff. So there's a whole new world there, which I think, you know, I might have to come back and do another one on that one. But um, both to you, Sachandran and Tori, great conversation, really interesting. I think there's a absolutely a, a follow up. So I hope your Christmas is good. Um, and let's, let's talk further in the new year. Thanks for joining both of you. Thank you. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.